Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. In our passage tonight, Peter, the apostle, makes the great confession. And Jesus uses it to uh, improve upon it, to draw at its meaning and its implications. Please follow as I read from Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he'll repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, I would ask this evening that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every week during Sunday morning worship, we make a confession of faith using the Apostles' Creed or a similar expression of our biblical beliefs. And in doing so, we are orienting ourselves towards God, reminding ourselves of what is true. We serve as a testimony to those who are visiting among us. And you and I are the beneficiaries of completed scripture, written some 2,000 years ago, and, and benefit from 2,000 years of reflection upon what our scriptures principally teach. The early church councils of the first centuries after the coming of Christ, for them, the primary concern was who the Christ was and what he accomplished. The identity of the Redeemer and the nature of redemption has been the driving force of biblical Christianity over these 2,000 years. 
Peter's confession is the foundation for every one of our historic creeds. But Peter's confusion illustrates the struggle we have to grasp who God is, who we are and what his purposes are for us. In our passage, Jesus helpfully corrects and clarifies what kind of Christ he is and offering a different set of expectations. He makes clear what he expects of his followers who are called to take up the cross in his likeness. So first, let's consider the nature of our confession. The setting takes place in the Roman town of Caesarea Philippi, some 25 miles north of Galilee. And it's here that Jesus withdraws with the 12 on a retreat to give them further instructions. And he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they proceed to explain, well, people think that he may be John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some people think that he may be Elijah, as prophesied in the book of Malachi, that Elijah would come again, the one who trailblazed the ministry of the prophets, took on Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Some say that Jesus may be Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, who spoke a message on deaf ears and suffered as a martyr. But Jesus really isn't concerned about what the people think. He wants to know, who do you say that I am? As he points and probes to the twelve. And Peter, acting like the, the boy that every Sunday school teacher loves, who is prompt with an answer, bursts out in a response that gives Jesus an opportunity to explain further the nature of our confession that is both from God and for the church. Peter, serving as the spokesman of the twelve, identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Old Testament scriptures had conditioned the Israelite people to expect a Messiah, one who would come and deliver them from their sins. And Peter, after witnessing Jesus' miracles, his teachings, his authority, knows that Jesus is the real deal. He is the Christ who is from God. Now, Peter was not likely thinking of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, or the second person of the Trinity. And though his understanding was incomplete, it yet was sincere. And he is committed to following Christ as Lord. And Jesus affirms him and calls Simon blessed and affirms that he was only able to make this confession because it was revealed to him by the Father in heaven. Flesh and blood could not discern this. No reasoning of man could identify who Jesus was. Plato and Aristotle were brilliant men who reasoned out many true things about God as our creator, but fell far short of understanding the saving needs of mankind. Without God opening up our eyes and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, we cannot understand God's ways. We are spiritually blind and deaf by nature. We can know many things about the created order, about the universe through physics and chemistry and biology, electricity and locomotion. But to understand God and how we might please him requires revelation. We need a word from the Lord to give us understanding. We cannot invent it. We must not 
conjure it up. And so for what purpose is this confession? Well, it's for the good of the church. In verse 18, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter using the Aramaic word for rock. And he says, upon this rock, he will build his church. This confession points the church, the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, what does Jesus mean here by the rock? Is he talking about Peter himself? That is what the Roman Catholic Church believes, assigning Peter the role of the first pope. But as many commentators have pointed out, if Jesus had meant such a thing, he could have said to Peter, well, upon you, I will build my church. But no, Jesus says, upon this rock, pointing to Peter's confession, the confession revealed to him by the Father, which serves as the foundation upon which the church rests secure throughout the ages. Jesus assures us that the church will remain steadfast. At the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. The enemy rages and prowls around like a roaring lion, but will not be overcome or undone by the evil one. I love the way we sing it, and the church is one foundation. The verse that says, The church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend. To guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against or for traitor, she ever shall prevail. That is well said. For the good of the church, Jesus entrusts the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the twelve. Give them authority to make judgments, to determine who belongs and who is forbidden. And of course, what is the litmus test for belonging to the church? It's the confession. It's the confessing of faith in the lordship of Jesus Christ, affirming him being the only way of salvation. And of course, that's characterized by lives that demonstrate that truth, not being mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And this delegated authority from the Lord is not exclusively given to Peter and to some succession of popes, but rather is passed on to all rightfully ordained men, teaching and ruling officers, as it makes clear in the rest of the New Testament under Paul's ministry and the other apostles. Jesus, in giving the keys, is, does not give absolute power to any authority in the church. We are under shepherds who are entrusted with the care of the flock whose responsibility it is to preach, to teach, to visit, to oversee the sacraments, to guard the flock, to chase away the wolves, to reclaim the strays, to discipline the wayward and restore the sick and the feeble. I believe that in some ways, the, in many ways, the sad state of the church in our nation today is evidence of a failure to handle the keys. Losing the keys, tarnishing the keys with compromising with the world, succumbing to the fear of man rather than holding to the fear of God and the failure to stand firm upon his word even when we find it's unpopular to the culture around us. Like many of his kin, Peter had great hopes in Jesus, seeing him as perhaps the David-like Messiah they were expecting who would lead a revolution to cast out the Roman occupiers to restore the golden age of Israel, to lead God's people into a season of revival. 
you know, that was not a bad vision, but it was, short, it was short-sighted. With a dim view of God's kingdom, Jesus obviously had something very different in mind and gives us pause to consider the nature of our confession as we confess the Christ of the scriptures. Hold fast to him as the only savior of sinners and not settling for lesser confessions, whether a therapeutic gospel of seeing only a Jesus that comforts us and makes us feel better, a prosperity gospel that somehow twines intertwines the Bible with prosperity and living for economic gain. Our passage emerges something very different, calling upon God's followers to undergo suffering, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ on a path to glory, to silence his worldly ambitions and counterfeits. So secondly, we see in our passage a need for correction. Verses 21 and 23 demonstrate this need. As Matthew points out that from this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he would be going to Jerusalem and would suffer at the hands of ruthless men, the lawful authorities of Israel, only to be killed and arise again. This is not a message the disciples were expecting. It's not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. This is not what they had signed up for. All this talk of suffering, death, and resurrection, it was incomprehensible to them. And so the twelve needed the lenses of their hearts corrected. Jesus here is speaking of himself in the likeness of Isaiah's suffering servant, the one who would be killed to fulfill God's purposes and provide the means of redemption for God's people. His death was not accidental. It was no suicide mission. He would go to the cross to bear the punishment for the righteous, the punishment that you and I deserve because even our best deeds fall short of fulfilling God's holy requirements. We needed a substitute, a perfect sacrifice to provide the atonement necessary to be made acceptable before a holy God. In the natural state of things, when a man dies, he stays dead. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is the great victor over death. It was the plan of God through Jesus to defeat death, to escape the power of the grave, to demonstrate God's power over life and death and his full authority over sin. The resurrection is the foundation of our hope. And without it, we really have no reason to be here. Without the resurrection, we are merely here singing nice songs, hearing nice words, offering one another false comfort as we endure life's hardships. This past week, I sent out a note to our presbytery informing our men of the death of a two-year-old little girl, the daughter of one of our young men under care who serves as the youth director at St. Stephen's Church in New Holland. This little girl lived two years of suffering from genetic disorders, 
requiring much special care by her loving parents. And though being a hardship to her parents, yet as little ones tend to do, endearing her parents' hearts to her. Parents are not supposed to bury their children. That's not the way things are supposed to be. And yet we find ourselves in a broken, fallen world where we have such trials and hardships. But while the world may wail unconsolably in such situations, believers have true comfort and true and lasting hope for the victory of Jesus Christ, the one who raised the little daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, will raise this little one as well. Our sorrows in this life are not permanent. And our joys in this life are only a pale comparison to what we will receive in our lasting life. The picture of God restoring Job is a picture of what we receive as God repays all the things that are lost in this sad world, as we look forward to glory, where all wrong, all wrongs will be made right, where death is dead and evil is no more, as we enter into the everlasting pleasures of enjoying God and the redeemed forever. We hold these truths. We believe in this hope. We stand firm in it. And yet, Peter has the audacity in his vanity and his ignorance to stand opposed to Jesus' mission. The one who had just triumphed with a great confession of who Jesus was now falls flat on his face, expressing a man-centered hindrance to the true path of glory. He is not having any of Jesus' talk about suffering. He cannot imagine harm following his beloved Master, Jesus returns a rebuke with a rebuke of his own. He calls Peter a stumbling stone, an obstacle along his path to the cross. You know, it's bad enough when the world is hostile to our gospel message, but it's disheartening when professing believers are resistant to gospel ministry. The summer after my freshman year of college, I was the intern at the church I grew up in, a mainline liberal church, and I preached the gospel. And I saw young people converted. And there were parents who were excited about my ministry, and there were parents who hated what I was doing. And that's the way it is in a, a broken, fallen world and in churches that are not full of the Spirit and committed to the gospel message. And we're not alone in this this day. This, this message is not palatable to many, many ears. And so Peter, in this moment, as Jesus points out, he has his mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. And he needs a rebuke. He needs a correcting. He needs to be turned away from seeking the power and the glory and the comfort of this world to have his eyes open to see the beauty and the glory of what God is doing and to see that there is a path to glory. Something beautiful and something glorious, even though it includes suffering and hardship and pain 
and the things that our flesh recoils at. Peter would eventually get that message. Peter would eventually go on to be a leader in Christ's church. He would even suffer and die a martyr's death, as tradition says, hanging upside down on a cross in Rome, pointing people to the true way of glory. There is true glory in the way of the cross. For with no, without, there is no crown without the cross. And so in these final words, Jesus shows us the very necessity of the cross. He explains to the disciples that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is not commanding. Rather, he is laying out the conditions for what it means to follow him, turning them away from Peter's man-centered vantage point to help us have a God-centered understanding of our discipleship and what it means to follow him. It requires self-denial. It requires a turning away from self-centeredness, the self-centeredness of our first parents who were concerned with self rather than primarily concerned with God's concerns and his priorities. We have to lay aside ourselves if we are to take up our cross and follow him. And each one has a different cross. God calls us to different challenges and different burdens, but they are all equally necessary for pleasing God. For some, taking up our cross may be denying some pleasure that proves a stumbling block in our path to glory. For some of us, it's parting with money. For some of us, it may be repenting of some pet sin that brings shame upon the name of Christ. For others, the cross might mean serving in a difficult ministry or in a far-off mission field, or even trusting our loved ones into foreign missions service. For others, it may be bearing ridicule for righteousness' sake, even when we stand against the iniquity of our times, as several of our young ladies did recently at the Hemfield School Board meeting, as they received the boos and the hisses of activists. But the Lord says to all those who bear the cross, Those who honor me, I will honor. And he is pleased with those who bear the cross with humility and dignity. And so Jesus closes with this gospel paradox. Those who save their lives will lose it, yet those who lose their lives for Jesus' sake shall save it. It's the great reversal. It's the great upside-down kingdom that teaches us to die to self and to live for God. Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There are many, many successful people in our Western capitalistic society. There are many people who have seemingly everything, but in the end, they will lose it. And Jesus asked, what will a man pay to redeem his own soul? Naaman the Syrian discovered on his trip to Israel as he sought out the, a prophet of Israel who could cleanse him of his leprosy. Elisha, you recall, did not even see Naaman. but gave him instructions, this great commander of the Syrian armies, 
to instruct him to go and wash in the river Jordan seven times and his leprosy would be healed. And you remember Naaman's proud response as he heaped down insults upon the muddy creek of the Jordan and said, how much better are the waters in Syria? Could not I have washed in one of those? But as he walked away in a huff, Naaman's servants humbly reminded their master, if God's prophet had given you, had asked you to do some great thing, would not you have done it? I mean, Naaman would have paid any price. He would have done any great deed to cleanse himself, to free himself from the, the indignity and the burden of leprosy. How much more would you do this one small thing? And Naaman comes to his senses and he follows his servants to the river Jordan and washes and finds that his skin is healed like a little child's. He's a changed man. And he goes back with great joy wanting to pay Elisha something out of his gratitude. And Elisha says, no, go and worship the Lord. A great picture of a life transformed that illustrates what Jesus is teaching in this passage. That for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And so we have before us two different paths of glory. The glory of the world seeks fame and honor and power and wealth and recognition. There's the path of the cross, the true way of glory that involves suffering and hardship and ridicule and pain and difficulty. Yet in the end is the gateway to an everlasting kingdom where there is no more pain and no more sorrow and no more hardship. And I'm reminded as we watch the Olympics this week and see the glories of athletic competition and the glory of hard work and determination and competition. Everyone seeks glory. But there's only one path to glory that truly lasts. And it's the glory that has been laid before us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as John the Apostle testifies in John chapter 1, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful for your Son, the one who came to show us the path of glory and to fulfill the means of redemption that are necessary for our salvation and everlasting life. Help us to be people who hold fast to our confession, who are willing to take up our cross and follow you wherever you will lead us. Lead us this week. We may bring honor and glory to your name. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you.
And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.